Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Okay, so um, hello everybody. Uh, welcome to our event today. Uh, my name is uh, Yao Niako. I'm a professor of economics at uh, New York University. It's uh, really glad, I'm really glad to have all of you here uh, today. Uh, we're going to have a really good conversation, important conversation. Uh, we have one of the best minds on the planet uh, to help us with that conversation. Uh, I just want to give a few remarks before we start. Um, uh, just by way of introducing our speaker today. Uh, for those of you who are outside the field of economics, um, I just want you all to know that his uh, early work has had a tremendous impact in economics. Um, it has to do with long-run growth. It has to do with how to grow in the long term. Ideas are important. The knowledge that we have happens to be very, very important. Uh, not only is it important, uh, our speaker today also taught us how to put these in models and um, do good econo economics with it, okay? And so after his work came out, we've had a flurry of literally thousands of papers uh, that use his model. So of course, um, you know, all of us in economics, we know very, very well his work. Uh, a small joke I'll tell you guys, or a small humorous thing. Uh, uh, I think the last time, um, one of the last times we met, uh, in person, um, this is all before COVID, uh, the speaker and I and a, a few others went for a lunch uh, in New York City. And over the lunch, of course, you know, it was a, a friend of mine, uh, Stan Bergman, a great supporter of Africa House, and his family invited us for uh, lunch. And as I was, you know, introducing everybody, what I just said, I said to them, I said, you know, it's very, very important economics. And I said, by the way, uh, you know, I think he's going to be winning the Nobel Prize uh, one of these days, okay? In fact, very, very soon because of that body of work. And, of course, the host and everybody said, well, very nice of you, Yao. This is Yao being, you know, flattery and all of that. And, of course, uh, lo and behold, uh, I think it was barely four or five months later, he did win the Nobel Prize for that work. Uh, all of you can go online and see the uh, Nobel's um, the announcements. You can read it in a bit more detail. And so the joke, of course, now is anytime I go to Stan Bergman's house and there's an intellectual there that says, hey, yeah, can you predict that I'm going to win the prize because you've got the magic touch there? So anyway, that's the small joke I don't want it to pass over. Um, today's talk is uh, very important for the UAE, the United Arab Emirates. Uh, as all of you know, uh, 1960s, early 60s, late 50s, the UAE discovered oil uh, was a very sparsely populated uh, country at that time and there was a big debate in the UAE. In other words, the UAE could have gone one of two different routes. It could have said, well, we've got this oil bonanza, let's just enjoy it. Our population is small, let's just live off the proceeds of the, uh, of the oil. Another camp, another view was that no, we should, our ambitions should be much higher. We should try and diversify our economy. We should try and modernize. We should try and become a major power. So um, this was a debate that was going on uh, in the ruling classes, the ruling families. And actually, those of you who've read the uh, history know that there was actually a transfer of power between one person and another, 
one generation another over these debates about how to uh, progress, okay? Uh, the UAE took the view that migration is going to be very important and should be a part of this economic uh, development strategy. And so thinking about development, migration, essentially important to the UAE. It was then, it is now, and we're going to be hearing about that. Uh, in my own work in Ghana, Ghana, um, I come from a place which is fairly sparsely populated. And there too, they're thinking of the same things. It's a bit of a, a tribal or traditional area. Should we bring in more people in? What do we do to land? Land that belongs to families, should we sell them out? And so we are engaged in the similar kinds of conversations in Ghana, in sub-Saharan Africa. So again, for me personally, all of this is uh, extremely important. So this is a, a, a wonderful um, piece of work that uh, our speaker has been engaged in for many, many years now, and we're gonna hear about that. So um, without further ado, I know you all do not wanna be hearing from me, you wanna hear from your speaker. So I'd like to present to you the uh, uh, Nobel Prize winner in economics, professor of economics, NYU, and also a great friend and a wonderful mind, uh, Professor Paul Roma. All yours. <laughs> Over to you, Paul. Yeah, thank you so much for that that very generous introduction, and and thank you for your prediction because you know, I, it, it helped to have a little bit of a nudge to get, get things uh, to move. Um, the as as y'all y'all mentioned the. The focus of my work uh, for two decades, at least, was the economics of ideas. And the most obvious uh, implication of the economics of ideas is that there are many things to discover and uh, that those discoveries can keep raising standards of living. So it's discovery which ultimately drives uh, progress. But there's a second implication, which is very important in the global context, which is that if there is one nation or one area which has discovered a very large number of ideas, it's possible for those ideas to be shared, to be reused by other nations. And this will give them the possibility of catching up very rapidly just by, uh, w without doing any new discovery during this catch-up phase, just by using what's, what's already known. So from the perspective of the economics of ideas, uh, the experience we've seen in China of a very rapid uh, growth of GDP as they catch up, in some sense, that should be the norm. We should expect that. And the puzzle is why uh, in so many other places is this not taking place? Now, the, the problem is, is that a, a modern economy, a modern society takes a certain amount of collective action. There are many things that people can do independently through what economists kind of broadly refer to as market-based activities. Nobody has to tell everyone what kind of shop to open, what kind of job to go take. So individual action can drive much of this, but there are critical parts of the development progress process that depend on collective action. There are certain things in each society which everybody have to agree on. Will we allow certain kinds of pollution? Will we allow certain kinds of uh, abuses of, of human rights? Uh, how do we interact with our neighbors? So this capacity for collective action is the, the thing that holds back many countries. Uh, 
And we don't know enough. No one in the world today knows enough about how you can take a large group of people who would like the benefits of collective action. The benefits we think of as being the ones that are provided by a government, which is how collective action is is expressed. <coughs> In many of these societies, people would like to have a government that can make decisions, act on behalf of everyone, set up the opportunity for the market to then uh, thrive. But um, it is very, very difficult to create uh, the kind of social cohesion, consensus, legitimacy that leads to a government that can act on behalf of all citizens. So what we now face is um, uh, this continuing progress in many countries and a, a large number of people who are stuck in conditions where uh, they don't know and we don't know how to give them uh, the benefits or help them establish the benefits of effective collective action. Now, what we've seen in the past is that at small scales, one remedy for this problem is for people who live in a situation where you don't have an effective system of government, you don't have effective collective action, for them to move from the place where they currently live to a place where there is uh, an effective uh, system of, of government. And, and at small scales, that offers, that offers enormous opportunities to those few who get to move to the new, the new society. But the problem is, is that as we try to ramp that solution up, it, it just collapses. It cannot be viable. And so the, the focus that I'll keep returning to in the talk today is the scale. We don't want to talk about measures uh, that deal with the desire for migration, the desire for opportunity. Uh, we don't want to talk about measures that are symbolic, that work for the, you know, the hundreds of thousands or, or millions of people. The, the Gallup organization right now estimates that there are about 750 million people who would leave their countries if they could, if there were some place that they could go. So the only candidate solutions are ones that could scale up to flows of hundreds of millions of people. And that presents a very daunting challenge for us. Um, if you think about you know, why scale is a problem, think about the EU as a potential you know, recipient of, of new migrants. People in the EU might be willing to accept uh, you know, a tenth of a percent of its population as, as new arrivals per year, maybe 450,000 uh, people per year, but, but not 4.5 million, certainly not 45 million a year. But, but then we cannot get to 750 uh, million people, uh, give them the chance to move to some place where they get the benefits of, of an effective system of collective action and then the benefits of the market and, and technology. And why would people in the EU re resist this? Well, there are two pretty obvious reasons. The first is, is that um, most migrants would be relatively lower skilled workers so that if they moved into the EU, 
That would be an increase in the supply of low-skilled workers. That would mean that because the, there's a downward sloping demand for low-skilled workers in the EU, wages would fall in the EU for low-skilled workers. So the existing low-skilled workers in the EU and the people who want to help them to keep inequality from becoming too large will not want to have a measure where tens of millions of people move in and put, put pressure on wages for low-skilled workers. The more subtle problem is that um, there's a tension between uh, the, the goals that we, we seek for all people on Earth. We, we would like everyone to be, uh, we'd like each government to be re responsive in some way to accountability uh, by its, its citizens. Um, we would also like everybody who lives in a country to be uh, eligible for um, uh, equal treatment under, under the law. So now think about what happens if you say to a small country, we, uh, we want, you know, you'd like to help, um, you know, tens of millions of people and, uh, you want to bring them into your economy, into your society, make them full members of society. So they, uh, so they can vote just as you can vote if you're an existing democracy. Um, but then the existing, Existing uh, voters may well hesitate and say, we don't know how the new arrivals will, uh, will vote if they come in and participate in our democracy. They might change the, the system of, of rules that we currently live under. And so it's very difficult to get uh, any system where there's a voice and representation for the existing citizens to accept a very large number of people who come in and who could have that same kind of voice and influence over the, the system of government. So this second issue is what I refer to as the, the constitutional trilemma. There are three things we'd like to have, but we can only get two out of the three of them. The first is that to facilitate the, the give opportunity to these 750 million people, we want to allow large scale migration flows. That's the first thing. But the second thing is we want them to on arrival or soon after arrival, have a chance at equal treatment under the law in the, the jurisdiction that they, they move to. And then three, we want that jurisdiction to be one where all of the citizens who all enjoy equal treatment can influence and hold accountable the, the leaders in, in that, that uh, system of government. So kind of as, as, a, as a quick and broad label, I'll refer to this last uh, kind of goal as local democracy. But of course, democracy can take many different forms. It's really uh, essentially local accountability. But if you take those three, large-scale migration flows, equal treatment under the law, and local accountability, we cannot get all uh, three of them at any one point in time. So many countries, uh, think about the EU or the United States, many developed countries, we um, allow people to move in as refugees uh, and have a chance at equal treatment. 
And then as they become uh, full citizens, they can influence uh, the, the system of government. But we simply do not allow large-scale migration flows. So we give up on the migration flows, but we have the equal treatment and the local accountability. Um, there's another approach um, which um, has been used sometimes in you know, some states in the Gulf. It's also been used, I think, de facto in, in a country like, like Sweden, where you let refugees come in, but you say that we don't have, we can't give you um, the same kind of uh, equal treatment under the law uh, that, that we would like to give. So you'll be a kind of special class of citizens or residents who won't have the same kinds of privileges and uh, rights as, as the existing citizens. So you can allow a little bit more inter uh, migration flows, larger migration flows, um, and preserve local accountability, but you give up on unequal treatment. And the, the problem with this approach is that the, the kind of the difference between the classes of those who were who are full citizens versus the, those who are, are new arrivals can over time build up uh, problems of resentment and tension and social uh, dis discord. So, and moreover, uh, if you think about the, the case of Sweden, there's still a limit on the number of new uh, arrivals that they can uh, bring in because of this issue of potential pressure on uh, wages for, for low skill workers. So we have uh, the kind of the, the, pro the pro program in the United States where we simply do not allow massive migration flows. You could try the Swedish option where you let people in, but hold out for them a kind of a semi-permanent status as second-class uh, residents. What, what I wanna propose is a third alternative that we think about where we give up at least temporarily on this notion of local accountability of, of government leaders. Imagine that we uh, allow uh, large-scale migration flows and we promise equal treatment under the law for everyone in any particular jurisdiction, but we do not offer local accountability, at least for some, some period of time. Now, what might that look like? I mean, a bad version of this would be to say, well, we'll just appoint um, uh, a monarch or an autocrat who's, who's in charge and who's not accountable to anyone. I don't, I don't think anyone thinks that this would be a good uh, alternative. But think about this uh, modified version. Imagine that there's a, a country that I'll call Demco, um, which is the, uh, the, the democratic, well-developed country. Think, think of some country in, in Europe. And Demco wants to be helpful. Suppose it creates a new jurisdiction where it says, for now, we will appoint the governor who's in charge of getting this city uh, up and running. That governor will be accountable to the prime minister in, uh, let's, let's call it, uh, well, Demco, I won't put names on it, but um, Demco has a prime minister. The prime minister appoints the governor. The prime minister holds that governor uh, accountable and makes sure he does what the people of Demco want to do. This is, remember, this is a democratic uh, country. What they want to do is help the local residents. The prime minister makes sure that the local governor uh, does that. But the people living in the jurisdiction um, that has now been set up 
do not actually influence the policies that um, that governor implements. Now, that sounds very um, perverse, and it sounds like a, a bad idea at first, but, but think about what it facilitates. Imagine you're part of a million people in a new, new jurisdiction, and the program is, and you like the way the system is working. It's giving you opportunity, your children are thriving, and you're told that another 9 million people will come in. If the local residents can determine the policies and the, the actions of the local government, you might be worried about uh, letting those 9 million in because the people who come might not support uh, the system of government, which is now working. Remember, they're coming from places where they can't get a system of government to work and making sure that a system of government works is a, is a fragile uh, business. But if you're in one of these jurisdictions and you're told for now at least, um, uh, the local residents are not going to change the basics of the rule of law, the promise of opportunity, the guarantees about freedom, so that you as the initial 1 million can uh, be not concerned that that system will change when the other 9 million come in. And those, those 9 million who come in, they will get exactly the same treatment under the law that, that you currently get, but you'll all be you know, protected because the, the system of government that you knew about when you decided to go there will be preserved uh, for, the, you know, for the indefinite future. Now, now think about how this system would uh, evolve over time. Um, initially, uh, it would be one where there's some new piece of land, a new jurisdiction, a promise of certain kinds of uh, governance, collective action that will be carried out in this, in this new place. And then people start to move in. But suppose this new jurisdiction is large enough to hold a city of about 10 million people. As it grows towards the 10 million people, it's no longer possible to allow large-scale um, migration inflows into this new jurisdiction. And then it's perfectly feasible to start to make the transition to more local accountability of government officials and less uh, inflows. So then you kind of get back to the equilibrium like in, in the United States, where you try to uh, stick to equal treatment under the law and local accountability of government leaders to the, uh, to the population. But in, in this sequencing, uh, when you get to the, 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 the scale, the maximum scale of this new jurisdiction, um, it, it makes sense to, to give up on um, large scale migration inflows. So if you just create one of these, well, how does that help? That helps 10 million people. That's still a drop in the bucket compared to all the people who want to, to go someplace. But the way we scale this is we go look for other comparable jurisdictions where other countries like Demco can set up a, a system of government, let another 10 million people move in. And then you can imagine it, it takes... Some, some optimism and some imagination, I, I agree. But you can imagine 75 new cities of about the size that could grow to the size of, say, New York City that could be created around the world 
who could accept uh, amongst them all 750 million people who want to who, who want to to move to someplace new. So so what this involves is a kind of a traverse through this um, uh, this trilemma that I talk about, where at first we give up on local control of government officials, local accountability, and we put the accountability in the hands of some existing system of government, which already functions relatively well. And then in this new jurisdiction, over time, as you get closer to the, the capacity, you make the transition to some form of local accountability for, for government officials. <coughs> so this kind of traverse is the way over time to work our way through the, this, this trilemma and ultimately achieve uh, the goals we'd, we'd like to uh, achieve. So that's the gist of the uh, the proposal that I'm uh, that I'm outlining. Um, let me let me just give you a little bit of a story uh, to to give you some sense that this could be conceivable. Um, so imagine that, that Demco uh, wants to help another country, Devco. So Devco, developing country, is in a region which is unstable. It's still at a low level of economic development. And suppose DEVCO has a million refugees who have moved there from, um, its, from its neighbors. So DEMCO says to DEVCO, and they're, by the way, they're living, these refugees are living in a refugee camp. And as, as is typically the case, the rules say, if you're in a refugee camp, you can't work because the, the workers in DEVCO don't want to face competition in the labor market from, from the new refugees. So you've got a million people with no permanent uh, guarantee of residency and no chance to work. And the people in DEVCO can see that this is a problem. The people in DEMCO can see that this is a problem. So the, the kind of European DEMCO country goes to DEVCO and says, look, there's an empty piece of land on your coast. And here's what we'll do to try and be helpful here. We'll create a, a new temporary jurisdiction on that piece of land. We'll let these 1 million residents move into that jurisdiction, but we'll create essentially border controls so that um, if there's uh, goods that are produced inside this new jurisdiction, they can't be directly um, exported to, to the rest of DEVCO and people living in this new jurisdiction can't go out and get a, a job in DEVCO. So we'll protect your local labor market from uh, the desire to work by these refugees and will instead have them be in this new jurisdiction. It's on a coastal location so they can engage in international trade. If, if the people who are working there manufacture things, those manufactured things could be exported to other, other countries, maybe to DEVCO, but maybe many others. And so they get a chance to, to work without posing a direct threat to the, uh, the citizens of, of, of DEVCO. So, so DEVCO and DEMCO agreed to this arrangement. They, um, they enter into a lease where DEMCO leases a, a piece of land on the, the coast of, of, of DEVCO. And um, uh, to get things up and running, DEMCO says, we'll appoint uh, the prime minister from DEMCO, we'll appoint a governor, and we'll get the basics going to make this new city viable. There are many things like 
police services, public health services, sanitation that will have to be provided locally. But those can all be provided by the people who, who move there. These refugees who can't work right now in the camp, they become the workers who can make everything uh, go in this, this new jurisdiction. So you just need someone who sets up the systems for uh paying people, for employing them, for promoting the right people, uh, for uh, giving all these possibilities. And Demco, of course, also might might import in, uh, invite in other other companies who could use the, the skills of the, the citizens who will now, uh, or the residents of this new, um, this, this new uh, zone that, that, that's created. So, um, so this is something which could work to the benefit of both um, Demco, which wants to be helpful, but can't ex allow, you know, uh, millions of people to move into its, uh, within its borders, and to the citizens of Devco, who don't uh, like the burden of having to support the million refugees, and who don't like the idea of telling people that they can't work, but yet who still want to, to protect their local labor markets, so they see no other alternative. So Demco and Devco might both be in favor, strongly in favor of this new, uh, this new jurisdiction that the refugees could go to. But then think about what happens. Um, if something beneficial happens to those refugees, these million people, um, they, uh, they, they get real opportunity, real safety, uh, the benefits that they were hoping for when they left their home countries. If people can see this, then the um, the millions of people in the surrounding countries, say another nine million people in the surrounding countries, say, "Oh, we want to get access to that too." So we're going to flood into Devco as another wave of refugees, because once we're refugees in Devco, then we'll we hope we'll be allowed to become residents of the the new jurisdiction. So doing the right thing will, in a sense, make the problem even even worse. Uh, Devco had uh, a million refugees on its hands. Now it's got uh, potentially another nine million who, who come flooding in. Now, at this point, the, um, uh, the people in the, the government leaders in Demco and Devco have a problem. They go to the million people in the new jurisdiction and say, you know, we'd like to let another 9 million people come in and enjoy the same benefits you have. But the people in Devco, I'm sorry, the, the people in the new jurisdiction, the million in the new jurisdiction say, wait a minute, we like the way this works. We like opportunity. We like the guarantees of freedom and rights that we're getting right now. Um, and, and we're worried because there, there are different factions amongst those 9 million people who want to come. Those factions uh, created frictions, rivalries, sometimes even violence that kept the government from working in the countries where they now live. If you let those new factions come in, they could undermine the system of governance we like right now in this new jurisdiction and recreate the conditions that we've all been trying to escape from of a government that just can't provide the services that we all, uh, that we all want. So the million people say, uh, in the new jurisdiction, you can't let in another nine million people here, and then tell tell all of us it's up to us to figure out how to make government work. And so the the residents of the current jurisdiction say, 
We could allow uh, those other 9 million to come in if you in Demco guarantee that through your support of the governor and the system of governance, that you won't let the current system be eroded, be damaged, be undermined by the existing frictions, the fears, the rivalries of the, the, the different groups that will uh, come under this, under this new system. And we, we anticipate, but part of why the rivalry is so intense between these two groups is that each is afraid that the other will oppress, the, the, the one will repress the other if they get control of something like the police services. And even if say ethnic group or uh, social group um, A doesn't want to try and seize unilateral control of the police, if group A says, well, if group B seizes control of the police, they'll oppress us. So we in group A, we better seize control first. So um, the fear that one group will abuse the system of government encourages the other group to try and abuse the system of government. But if both of these groups know that neither can get control of the system, that there's uh, an existing system of governments, governance which does not allow capture of something like uh, the police uh, services, uh, which is ultimately accountable to the, you know, the prime minister and the voters in, in, um, in Demco. If you don't have that fear, um, then the two groups, group A and group B, might be able to live in harmony uh, around each other because they both know that neither A nor B is going to be able to take control of the police. And then A and B can get the benefits of um, stability, peace, opportunity, education. And over time, this history of animosity will go away and uh, everyone will have a stake in the preservation of the basic rule of law and a system which guarantees equal treatment for all. But there'll never be a chance that somehow A will force B into the status of being second-class citizens or B will force A into that same kind of, um, that same kind of status. So the, the idea of um, an external system of accountability for local government, which guarantees this principle of equal treatment, this can remove the fear that animates so much of the friction and violence that undermines governance in so many countries. And if people can live together um, it, without fear, then they can establish the kind of social ties and uh, uh, social connections, the, the, the broad uh, basis for taking over uh, the local system of government at, at some point in the future. <coughs> the, the point of this narrative is to make it clear that it's the existing uh, 1 million uh, residents of the new jurisdiction who say, we do not want you, Demco, to turn over to us local responsibility for uh, the governance, uh, local responsibility for setting up and maintaining uh, our, our system of governance. And we especially don't want you to turn it over to us if you're going to allow in another 9 million people um, uh, who currently um, uh, have a history of, of fear and, and, and antagonism. So the, the, the problem with this kind of proposal is that 
people link it to historical activities where, uh, say, European power set up a colonial regime, which it imposed on people who did not want it. This is a very different system where there are people who say, we want to live under the systems of governance that rich uh, and well-developed countries have established. We want the rule of law. We want equal treatment under the law. We want security. And so we're asking for uh, a government which has experience with this to set it up locally and uh, then to allow people like us to come into this new place and for us all to live together and get the benefits that technology and the market uh, can, can offer. So the, the, the bottom line is, is that, uh, and by the way, there is a historical precedent for a system like this. Hong Kong under the British was governed by a governor who was appointed by the prime minister in, in Britain. That governor maintained certain uh, commitments about how the system in Hong Kong would work. And large numbers of people moved into Hong Kong under, uh, when it was under British rule. The existing residents in Hong Kong were not perturbed by this. Of course, people living in, in uh, the United Kingdom were not perturbed either. So the, the governor uh, who was in charge of the system of government in Hong Kong, um, that structure could allow both local uh, residents and uh, people in uh, the country which is holding the, the governor accountable. This can let all of them be comfortable with large scale inflows into this, this new kind of jurisdiction. Now, now there, there are many details that one would have to, uh, to work through in a proposal like this. And, and you know, maybe some of those will, will come up in the, in, in the Q&A. You know, one obvious question is that if this is a lease on land um, originally provided by DEVCO, does that lease expire? Or is there some process whereby the new jurisdiction could become a part of, of DEVCO at some point in the future? So, you know, this was, you know, this was kind of one of the issues which has been contentious and difficult in, in Hong Kong. So we can think about that, that possibility um, and think about how to structure things so that um, uh, looking forward far into the future, we can have some confidence that this, these arrangements will, will work relatively well. But, but let me just close with a vision of what global competition could look like under this arrangement. Think about Demco in setting up this new city can actually finance it without charity because uh, the land uh, that Demco has a lease for becomes far more valuable once a new city gets established there. So that this can be a self-financing kind of venture. Um, and so Demco might be interested in doing, doing more of this. If you want to think about it in, in an analogy, this is very large scale real estate development. You can pick a piece of land big enough for 10 million people, it's worth almost nothing right now. And then you turn it into a modern city, it could go from something like, you know, like thousands or millions of dollars into having a value that could be worth something like a, a, a trillion dollars. So this is something that Demco may actually want to encourage. Um, so, and then uh, let me link this back to another point about infrastructure. China is trying to develop 
uh, a system of infrastructure through its uh, Belt and Road Initiative that would link uh, uh, many countries. The, the unfortunate reality about infrastructure is you can never pay for it from the fare box or the, the shipping fees or the passenger fees. Infrastructure never pays for itself. But the way you can finance it is that infrastructure, like links to the rest of the world, can take a piece of land and make it much more valuable. So it's the gains in the value of the land that gets connected through the infrastructure to the west, rest of the world that can actually be used to finance the infrastructure that, that connects this new place to other places around the world. So you could imagine a kind of competition where the United States is creating new jurisdictions by signing leases with various uh, uh, countries around the world. Um, and China is doing the same thing, perhaps along the Belt and Road Initiative, because it sees that ultimately local government will not be able to pay back the loans and pay for the infrastructure that China is building unless new cities develop, which makes uh, the land uh, that's connected by the infrastructure so much more valuable. So you can imagine a kind of a rivalry that breaks out between the United States and China that are creating these new jurisdictions and that are competing for new residents by uh, soliciting uh, migration from people all, all over the world. To succeed, this kind of large-scale real estate development has to attract people. And, and then there's a kind of a force that holds a little bit of a check on both the Chinese government and the US government. How do we make sure that they do this in a way which is beneficial to the residents? Well, if the residents have a choice between different systems, if it's not sufficiently beneficial, they'll go to the other one instead of uh, uh, the, the, the first one. So, um, and then you could imagine the EU as well, or individual nations in the EU setting up um, comparable uh, new jurisdictions uh, like this. So this could change, especially the rivalry between the United States and China um, can take that away from the traditional military rivalry where they compete by building more, more aircraft carriers and into a really productive competition between, between systems. Uh, you know, the kind of the critics from the left in the world would say, well, the US system, if they set this up, it'll be controlled by corporate entities. Um, the workers will not get high wages, it'll be miserable. And then the answer to them is, well, you know, if that's the way the US sets it up, people are gonna rather go to the, the Chinese place. And in, and in Chinese cities, people will say, well, the, the kinds of local rights and guarantees, uh, civic participation that the Chinese will offer, the system of tracking, uh, monitoring of, of individuals, people won't like that. Um, and then the answer is, well, you know, if that's unattractive about the Chinese cities, people won't go there. They'll go instead to the cities that, that the U.S. offers. And maybe there'll be some Euro European um, new jurisdictions that can offer a kind of a, a, say, a middle ground, which is even more desirable than either what the U.S. or, or China offers. So we could have a real competition and rivalry between systems, but one which is actually beneficial to the whole world. And as I emphasized before, does not require charity. It just requires the harnessing of the gains that can come in the value of the land when you let people have opportunities to work, acquire skills, and, and to thrive. 
So uh, that would be my vision for uh, the competition that would be great for the entire world to see in the, the coming century. Let me close with that and um, turn it over to any questions that, that y'all wants to ask me or reactions and, and uh, or, or questions he might collect from the audience um, uh, that, that you may have about this kind of proposal. Okay, so uh, thank you so much, Paul. Um, uh, we've, we've been discussing this for uh, a number of years now on and off and uh, any, anytime I hear you uh, talking about this again, ideas flow through my mind. I see it in a different way. So uh, this was great. I really enjoyed the uh, um, everything. So um, uh, what I'll do is I've written down most of the uh, comments uh, on my iPad here. I'll read them out. Uh, for the audience, this is being recorded. And so um, it will be made available. I think there'll be an email link on the Institute page. So those who wrote in and asked if this is gonna be recorded, Yes, it is recorded. Yes, you will see it. Yes, please share it, okay? I think it was a wonderful conversation. Uh, the very first question was, how would your model work in non-Western liberal democracies? So I think, you know, you've answered a bit of that. But again, you know, I just want to tease out a few things for you. So I'm just imagining Africa and you want to, you know, um, you know create one of these uh, demcos in Africa. How would it work? And yeah. I know you've spoken about democracy and uh, versus colonialism, but I can tell you when I speak to my colleagues in Africa, it's always like, uh, gee, here come the Europeans again. Weren't we colonized once anyway? Yeah. Why should it be the Europeans again? So do you want to talk to that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think um, there, there are many things to be um, you know, to be established, many choices that would have to be made in creating one of these yeah. new jurisdictions. And this is part of why I think it would be very good for the world if there were different governments that were engaged in this activity. So China doing it alongside of the United States and Europeans doing it, uh, perhaps other countries. You could imagine India doing this, Japan doing this. Any country that has a system of government with a prime minister or president that can appoint and hold accountable the, the local leader, many different countries could engage in this activity. And I, what you'd see is different choices those governments would make in how they, they set this up. Um, you know, China has more experience with, say, a different level of monitoring of, of social media, of, um, you know, individual, um, you know, discourse. Um, uh, so, you know, you could characterize the United States as the Wild West, where we'd let these tech firms just take advantage of everybody. China as a more government-controlled system, which puts some limits on what can happen online. Mm -hmm. Let China and the United States set these up and then let people uh, choose where to go and try to make sure as part of like the, the baseline international commitment is that any jurisdictions like this have to allow exit. That if people get there and they don't like what they're experiencing, they can go someplace else. And as long as there are other places that are in the same business of competing for residents, that will be a, a, a real competitive threat. So on many dimensions where there could be different choices, 
these different jurisdictions could offer choices, and ultimately the ones that best serve the interests of the potential migrants will be the the ones that that succeed. Now, now it compared in addition to just something simple like how do you regulate you know social media, digital media? There there are very important discussions and decisions to make about if we're going to make an ultimate transition to something like local accountability for government officials, what will that look like? Will it be a representative democracy? Will it be direct democracy? People just, just vote on every decision? Um, will it be some hybrid form? Um, different countries establishing these, these regimes could outline different types of local governance and local control of, of uh, gov government officials. And here too, I think, you know, potential uh, residents will choose between alternatives that they find uh, more or less, um, more or less uh, uh, attractive. There, there will still, of course, be some concerns about something like, like national pride. Um, you know, the, the citizens of whatever, calling DEVCO, they might say, why do we need to let this, this foreign country come in and set up the new jurisdiction? Why don't we just set it up ourselves? If a, if a, if a country like DEVCO is willing to try and set up a new jurisdiction, and if it can set it up in a way which actually makes it credible and attractive for people to, to move there, the, the, the citizens of DEVCO could get into this, this game as well. But, but the thing we have to be realistic about is that many countries like DEVCO are at a level of development. And if DEVCO is having trouble doing that internally, it's, it's, it's a little bit implausible that they could do it well in this new jurisdiction when they're having trouble doing it um, in the country. So I, I think you could have a system where even the developing countries could compete in this business of setting up new jurisdictions, but it might be that the, the ones set up by the, the, the more established developers turn out to be more, uh, more competitive and I think we should all accept that as, as being um, an, an okay um, outcome. You know, maybe DevCo actually learns about make sure that the security services can't be taken over by one, say, you know, ethnic group or religious group and be used to oppress another. The citizens of DevCo might actually learn about how to do that. If there's a, a local jurisdiction nearby, which is which is doing it well, so if we just set aside the concerns about national pride, I think this is a constructive way. Okay, Paul, so we cannot hear you now. Uh, hopefully you'll come back. <laughs> Sorry, I, I lost you for a second. No worries. Uh, Dr. Zoom was saying, Paul, you've talked long enough, so be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, so can you hear me, Paul? 
Uh, yes, I can. All right. Okay. So, um, uh, great. We lost, we lost the very uh, last part of uh, uh, what you said, but I think we got the gist of it. Um, so I'm just going to continue reading some of these uh, uh, comments. Um, I think you're answering uh, many, many of them. You mentioned Hong Kong. Uh, somebody asked, uh, these leases, uh, how, how long would they last? I can't remember what Hong Kong was. Was it 99 years, if I'm not wrong? And so what is, what is there your was a part, yeah. yeah, there was a part of it which had a 99-year lease, and that turned out to be a problem um, because I think the kind of structure you'd like it to put in place is one where there's a lease that can be maintained indefinitely unless uh, uh, all parties agree to um, to revoke it and merge the two uh, the two jurisdictions um, together. So you could imagine a process whereby at some point in the future, the the residents of the new jurisdiction and the residents of DEVCO vote on a proposal that would integrate um, the new jurisdiction back into the system of governance in, in, in DEVCO. And if you don't put an artificial time limit on this, there will very likely come a time where everybody can see the benefits of uh, unification. Um, but I think we, we shouldn't uh, put an artificial limit on this because it could force a transition at a time um, when people aren't, aren't ready and that, that could be costly. So, but, but let, me, let me push you a little bit on that, Paul. So taking the uh, Hong Kong example, my guess would be that if the residents of Hong Kong had to vote, they would say, I do not want to merge with China. Yeah. Uh, if China, knowing that the residents will say that in 1999 years hence, yeah. would at the time of signing decide, well, I'm not going to sign because the rules will tell me when it's time to hand over, you have to vote and they're not going to vote for it. So yeah. how, how do you, what is, what's your response to that? Yeah. Um, I, I think you know, go back to like the current situation in DEVCO. They've got a million refugees. They got nine million people who could come flooding in at any moment, and they're struggling to create the conditions of effective government to sustain development. Um, so this prospect of creating a new jurisdiction on land, you know, I suppose this land, you know, that they, they don't even control right now. They're you know kind of terrorist groups or militias that, that control the land. They're saying, we're gonna give up control over some land we can't control now anyway. We don't know if uh, when it might return back to um, uh, being part of the, the nation. We don't know if, if it will ever return back. But given the options that we face right now, ceding control for at least some period of time over that small area may be beneficial to us and beneficial to the whole region because uh, these people in the refugee camp can work. The people who might come flooding into our country can just go to this, this new place and everybody might benefit from the reduction in the tensions between these different uh, competing uh, factions, which are making the whole region um, unstable. So a, a current governor of DEVCO may well say, well, it's a bit of a concession to kind of give away control of some land and not know when or if we'll, we'll ever get it back. But given the limited alternatives we face, it, it seems like it's worth trying. Okay. Great. Uh, another question had to do with um, uh, the benefits to the locals in the country 
versus those who are in this new new city, new area, etc. Yeah. And what happens when? So I'm gonna I'm gonna make this a two part question. Uh, a, what happens when those who are in the country itself they look at this new city and they're saying the folks there are better than us in the rest of the country, right? Yeah. And we're importing people there. How about us? Okay. And so that's the question. And related to that, um, I think Brasilia, if I'm not mistaken, was uh, created, um, uh, you know, uh, from the ground up. It mm -hmm. was a wasteland. And they created it for exactly that reason, for that purpose. It was a big development scheme. The right. then president of Brazil hurried up and tried to create Brasilia. And so, so the question to you is, should national governments be doing that by themselves? What's so unique about your idea? Yep. Well, on the first question, I, I think there's some interesting options here. The government of DEVCO might say to, to DEMCO, which is going to be you know, administering this new uh, jurisdiction, the, the refugees from other countries that move into there, they have to stay there. They don't have the right to cross the border and come in to DEVCO. But we might want to let the current residents of DEVCO go into that uh, jurisdiction and move back. So some of our current citizens could move into, um, into this new jurisdiction, work there for some period of time, still remain citizens of, um, of, of the DEVCO. So you could offer a kind of a, a special privilege for the current residents of DEVCO. They get to come in and out, whereas the people who move in from other countries have to stay in, in the jurisdiction. They can't move in, into DEVCO. This, um, this would open up <clears throat> some opportunities for, for DEVCO. It, it might also be a little bit threatening for, for DEVCO. If it has a, a local business center, some local um, urban centers, and too much of the activity were to leave, the existing places and go to this new jurisdiction that could be that could be harmful but devco could conceivably set up its own jurisdiction right next door to um the 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 new one um so it's kind of like you know shenzhen uh near near hong kong and that might be one of the ways to uh, you know balance these interests but i think there's a way to you know offer um the options that will make this even more attractive to a, a typical person, a typical citizen of, of, uh, of, of DEVCO. Now, I've forgotten what your second part of that question was. Um, no, so I, I think you've answered it. The second part was why doesn't the nation itself, DEVCO, create yeah. its own jurisdiction? That's right. So this yeah. was the Brazilian example. Well, oh, oh yeah, well, there is, there is a little bit of evidence about if you're going to create a new city, don't try and make it a city which caters to rich people. You know, um, Brasilia was a place where government officials, rich Brazilians, wanted to be able to go and get away from the poor. And, you know, that's just, you know, I think, you know, morally um, suspect. But from a perspective of kind of, you know, 
economic development and, and real estate development. It's just a bad strategy. There aren't that many. Um, there aren't that many rich people. So these new jurisdictions have to be places where the, the living accommodations are very inexpensive. People build them themselves. A lot of the work is initially things like garment assembly, which pay relatively low wages. But you can create a new city which caters to um, people who have low levels of education, low levels of skills, firms that want to um, uh, employ those those kind of workers, and then move over time towards um, you know a, a system with many more high income, high skilled uh, individuals. So the mistake with Brasilia was that it was marketed for people who wanted to get away um, from the people we really should be trying to help with these um, with these new cities. Uh, another question, and I think you answered it partially, but I'll ask it again. Uh, the fear about religion. And so, you know, a lot of conflict uh, throughout, uh, you know, the time, you know, human history. Uh, we all know yep. the religious wars in Europe, um, you know, countries that were essentially brothers and sisters fighting the 30-year war, the 100-year war, etc. And mm -hmm. so I think the question is asking, you know, what do you do about religion? And what if you have a preponderance of one religion as opposed to another? I think this is part of your conflict question. But anyway, it was asked, and so maybe you can sure. direct me to that. Well, let me, let me just point to a kind of a fact, which is that um, in Iraq, under Saddam Hussein, Shiites and Sunnis lived in mixed neighborhoods in relative peace with each other. Now, there were many terrible things about um, Iraq under Saddam Hussein, but, but one of the things that it did offer was a system of security forces that, not, that both the Shiites and the Sunnis knew were not going to be captured by, by the other group. So this process of like ethnic cleansing and pushing everybody out from your neighborhood and then establishing a local militia, this was all created by the destruction of the overarching system, which protected everybody. So I think of this as evidence that if you can create conditions where everybody feels safe, they can tolerate. I can live near people who have a different religious faith and um, we can tolerate each other because they know that our group is not gonna try and take over the police and oppress them. And we knew that their group is not gonna take over the police and, and oppress us, you know, take over like with, by creating our, their own local um, uh, militia because there's a system of government which simply will not let that happen, that will keep us all safe. And I think the reduction in fear that comes from safety is the best way to establish the conditions of, of tolerance um, that we'd like to see in, in a society which allows uh, different people to uh, pursue uh, many different activities and, and to, to hold different uh, religious beliefs. Okay, uh, one question for you. Um, are you thinking of DEFCOs as only being poor countries? Um, could, there well, be, could America be a DEFCO and take part of the <laughs> desert in, you know, you name it? <laughs> no, this, this is a great, this is a great question. Um, I could imagine um, the United States doing this at some point in, in the future. Um, I can imagine Australia doing this. I mean, Australia's got these immense sort of swaths of coastal area where, where people could come. I, I even just to um, 
kind of be provocative. I, I wrote an op-ed or gave an interview in Sweden where I said, Sweden can do this. Just go someplace on the Baltic coast where there's very few people settled. Just create a new place where these refugees who feel like they're not part of your society, create a new place where they could, they could go in and, and live, create your own Hong Kong. Um, th this of course got me some, um, uh, you know, email death threats from, yeah. from Sweden, but, but, but it, it also prompted, I think a very revealing conversation I had with some, some officials, which went as follows. They said, look, for this to work, the new jurisdiction has to have different levels of social services, different average levels of income than we uh, provide to all of our citizens in Sweden. It's just the reality of just the budget you know, constraints. You can't provide the same level of income and social services in this new place as, as we provide in Sweden. Now, but many people, many migrants would be happy to move to a place that doesn't provide those very high levels of, of services. But this person said, you know, if the Swedes just look over the fence right next door and they say children who aren't getting access to schools that are as good as Swedish schools and, and people who don't have the same, you know, material resources, smaller apartments uh, than, than say we, we have in Sweden, Swedes are going to feel very uncomfortable about the inequality that they see nearby. So we understand it would be good to create this kind of new place because it wouldn't be as good as Sweden, but it would be much better than uh, where people are coming from. But, you know, here we, we Swedes, we just couldn't be comfortable with it when we have to look at it right next door. So let's go set it up some, some, someplace else. And so, you know, in effect, the Swedes were kind of saying, well, let, let's go do a deal with Australia. You know, there's a piece of their coastline that's going to be so far away from everybody else in Australia. Let's go do it there. And, you know, you can play through this same kind of um, logic in, in the United States or even a new zone you could create on the border between the United States and, and, and Canada. Um, you know, to be clear, What's part of the, the problem about allowing more migration in the United States? Right now, um, the Republican Party is worried that if new migrants come in um, and then ultimately get the chance to vote, they will tend to vote for Democrats and that will put the Republicans at a long run disadvantage. Now, now, you know, kind of one reaction is to say, well, then Republicans, why don't you stop being so hostile to migrants yeah. and, and make a viable kind of claim at, at getting some of them to, uh, to support your policies. But, you know, that's not going to happen anytime soon. But the Republicans might be willing to say, OK, we could create this Hong Kong like zone, say, on the border of the United States and Canada and have the United States and Canada jointly appoint the governor or something, as long as those people aren't in any time in the near future, going to vote in, in US elections, we're not gonna be threatened by it uh, politically. And then the Republicans, if they're smart, might even say, you know, at some point when this place becomes rich and viable, there are a lot of people who might wanna move from that you know, jurisdiction into the United States. They might be well-educated, they might be affluent, they might be Republican voters. So later we might set up a system where you could kind of move from the new jurisdiction into the United States with a green card, maybe even have a chance at citizenship in a way that doesn't threaten the, the current Republican Party. So I, I think it's a kind of it's a long shot, but it's worth um, imagining all the different places around the world where we could we could do this. Right. So so just um, just to pick up on that, there was another question about high skill migrants. And so a lot of 
implicitly what I heard from you a lot of the time seemed to me probably incorrectly had to do with low skilled migrants leaving countries yep. which are not doing that well and coming to DEVCO. So the question yep. was about high skilled migrants because you'll need the high skilled to grow that uh, DEVCO. And the high skilled have, they can go to DEMCOs or DEVCOs, right? right. So you're going to have to get the incentives right. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think, as I was saying before, it, it seems crass, but think about this as a real estate venture, you know, kind of uh, some rich country like Sweden's going to create a brand new city that's only going to attract uh, 10 million people. I mean, the reality is that the bulk of the people you can attract are going to be low skilled. So then you have to ask, okay, well, where are we going to get the nurses and the doctors and the police officers to do all of the, the functions in this new jurisdiction? Well, you get them the same way that, you know, other countries got them during the developing development process. You educate them locally and you raise the skill levels. So the most ambitious, the hardest working, uh, the most talented will acquire these skills and become uh, the local um, high skill workers. But I think as a, you know, as a, you know, just the viability of this kind of project. If, you know, if Sweden were to say, well, let's, we got a piece of land we negotiated someplace else. Let's try and make this work, but let's make it a place that just tries to attract rich people. We'll have condos there, you know, we'll have entertainment. We'll, we'll make it, you know, uh, kind of a special zone at trying to attract uh, rich people. There, there's just no market right now. Rich people can move anywhere in the world. There's no captive market you can uh, capture by saying we're going to create a new you know, kind of Brasilia special special city that attracts the the rich and the, the the talented. The opportunity here is to create the kind of city that, say, New York City was in 1900, a city that was accepting millions of people who got their first jobs doing things like garment assembly. That's the way to develop a, a successful city. In 1900, New York didn't say New York City didn't say, well, let's let's invite in all of the royalty and all of the wealthiest people. And, and that's somehow how we're gonna grow the city. It, it, just, it just wouldn't have worked. That's right, that's right. Um, I, I, I love your idea on uh, your comment on New York City because I think it was you who told me uh, uh, where NYU is in New York, yeah. uh, Washington Square Park used to be the Northern boundary of New York. It was farmland. Yeah. You know, all of the Upper East Side, Midtown was all farmland. And yeah. so I think New York is actually a very good idea. And I think- <laughs> And, and people forget that was only a hundred years ago that New York City had the kind of sweatshops that we now think about in, you know, kind of in Bangladesh. And, you know, we had things like fires, uh, a famous fire in this building that, you know, you and I walked past where people died in this sweatshop because the conditions were, were so terrible. So even if you start as a city recruiting people who have very low levels of skill, who are going to work in something like garment assembly uh, kind of manufacturing sites, there's a pretty quick path where you get from like New York City of the, this, this famous fire in the sweatshop was 1915. There's a pretty quick path where you get from New York City of 1915 uh, to New York City of, you know, 2015. And um, it, it's, a, it's a very viable uh, process. You're not going to get there if you try and start right away by building New York City of 2015. It, it just won't work. Right, right. Uh, very good point. And, um, you know, anytime I'm talking about the UAE, um, and especially to people who are a little bit critical of the migrants who are currently there. It's mm -hmm. a failure to understand the United States has been there. And so there's a question I, I want to ask you. How do you deal with 
the following, which I think is faulty logic, right? And so you take a place in DevCo, you take maybe the low-skilled workers in the UAE or in any country, mm-hmm. and you get people, particularly on the left, okay, and I consider myself on the left, however, in this particular argument, I disagree with them. They would yeah. say, look at all these people. Their living standards are low. It could have been much higher. Therefore, yep. the country that hired them are bad people, exploiting, yep. and they fail to realize that where they're coming from was much, much worse. Yep. So in other yep. words, the people who have the mindset don't help anybody unless you can help them to the max. Yep. Half helping is worse than no helping. Yep. And that's a logic I never understand, but how do yeah. you... But I think, you know, this conversation I had with the person in Sweden kind of reflected an awareness that it was illogical, but it was a very, you know, it was almost an inevitable emotional reaction that when we see stark differences, stark inequality, very close up, when we see it in our daily lives, it just produces a moral reaction that this is is wrong. So I think my advice would be um, to myself and, and to you is that in these conversations with people, we, we, we don't try and tell them you're wrong to have a moral reaction against inequality. You know, it's just like, it's natural to have that natural inequality, to have that reaction. But still, let's look at what are the practical alternatives. Um, if we do nothing, that's maybe not as good as some other things we could, we could try to do. So I, I, I try very hard not to tell people they're wrong to have certain kind of moralistic reactions, but to say, well, let's take those as given, but then let's see if we can work around it in a way that will actually help all of these people who are not being helped under our current, our current system. You said that so well. Um, looks like you're going into politics or something, right? Uh, <laughs> that was said so well. Don't tell them they're wrong, but ease them into the argument. Well, well, you know, but, but this is actually an important point. I have a mantra that I now use with people, which I say, feelings are facts, okay? If someone feels like it's wrong to do this, that's a fact. And you can't go to that person and say, you know, you're wrong to feel that. And you feel what you feel. And there's a reality to that. But let's accept that. And let's still see, is there some room for compromise? And, um, you know, is there some room to do something that you feel um, is less than ideal, but might be better than just um, continuing with with what we have? And I think if we look for that kind of middle ground, we might actually be able to make real progress. Excellent. Excellent. Well said. Um, There's just one question here. I think you've answered it, but uh, it was a question from the audience. And it was posed as, uh, what if... Devco gives its worst land, yeah. hot, humid, mosquito-ridden, etc. Won't that be a bad thing? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it 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 might mean that if you have enough of these cities that are being or these new jurisdictions being created, <coughs> excuse me, I have a bit of an asthma cough. If you have enough of these cities being created, some might be in locations that are so you know uh, you know unattractive that they don't, they don't succeed, but that's okay. I mean, they don't have to all succeed. We just need places where, where people can go. And let me just say as well, that if you think about Singapore, Singapore was not a location that in terms of climate was particularly attractive, but yet 
a system of government which gave people a chance to, to work, to have opportunity to acquire skills, to be safe to live as Muslims and ethnic Chinese together without any fear of riots. If you can create that, you can overcome uh, a lot of other uh, disadvantages about a, about a location. And by the way, you know, the value of the land in Singapore, when Malaysia basically gave it away, they thought this, this land in Singapore was worth about nothing. You know, um, now, right, the, the people in Singapore who, who look at this tell me that the land in Singapore is worth about a trillion dollars U.S., that's before you account for the value of the buildings that, that sit on top of it. And so part of why Singapore financed itself and succeeded was it captured a lot of that gain in the value of the land and used it to finance the, the system of government that actually made, uh, uh, made the place viable. So Singapore succeeded without any charity from the rest of the world. And there's no reason why we can't do the same thing in, um, in other places. Excellent. So this is, uh, as you keep saying, uh, it's all about real estate. So uh, I'm not <laughs> call you uh, Paul Roma, the real estate dealer, right? Yeah, right, right. Um, I have one other question here, which I don't think you mentioned much, but let, let's hear your um, thoughts on it. So the question is, um, talking now about the, the source countries, okay? So those countries that are losing people, is it going to be the case, somebody asked here, are we going to have an empty Syria? And yeah. MP Venezuela, others, it's going to be, um, I think it's called the, the great sucking sound. And yeah. so it slowly yeah. depopulates certain nations. Yeah. Well, I think, I think there's a little bit of a risk of that, but I think that wouldn't be a bad thing. It would say to a country, if you, the people who are still here, cannot find a way to establish a government which makes it safe to live here, which makes it attractive for people to, to live here, um, then you should uh, lose all of your, your citizens. Um, there's no reason we should doom people indefinitely to um, these, you know, really intolerable um, uh, conditions. But if you can get those basics right, use the threat of migration as part of the impetus to reach some compromises, do some deals, get things working locally, then you can benefit a lot. Because, you know, you think about countries like, like, like China, which had many people go out to other places to live, to get educated, to work. Those people, um, many of whom, many of them came back or they were kind of uh, part of trading networks that lo the local citizens could still interact with. So having some of your citizens go get established in other places is not a bad thing as long as you can get your act together locally and meet at least the minimum viable conditions for creating a place where people want to live. Okay, excellent, excellent. Uh, it reminds me of some of my own work on the brain drain. Uh, anytime yeah. somebody accuses me of having left Ghana and yeah. not uh, you know, contributing back, I just tell them that you know, Ghana can also uh, benefit from the... Uh, my going back and I'm doing research there as well. Okay. Absolutely. All right. So we're almost uh, slowly getting to the end now. Let me just look through this, uh, see if I missed any. Um, um, <laughs> let's see. Is this ISO Venezuela? We have who is going to take care of diplomacy and defense against external actors? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, remember, Demco is the one that's appointing the governor. Demco 
if if the conditions in the surrounding countries are sufficiently you know unsettled and and there's a real risk of violence demco may want to establish a security force that protects this new jurisdiction or at least protects the border from um from invasion but again this doesn't have to be you know officers of the military of of demco who then come down and become this force um the people who are living there in this new jurisdiction become uh the the members of the the security force that's organized by um by um demco and remember part of what demco is doing is telling everybody we're going to use this force to protect ourselves from invasion we're not going to use it to try and suppress some internal group or to help one group versus another this is only here to protect us um from from invasion and, and border protection i think will be um a real threat probably not so much uh, a real issue not so much from organized invasion by one national army against another but we are seeing many of these kind of um militias and you know kind of informal uh groups that engage in violent violence and any nation is going to have to be able to protect its borders from incursion by by those kinds of groups or not just nation any jurisdiction and also somebody's going to have to make sure that those some members of those you know these terrorist groups don't inter, um kind of um move in and start to operate within the the new jurisdiction security is a very important issue and one of the most important things a government has to do is establish the conditions that make sure that people in this new jurisdiction aren't afraid of getting you know blown up in a terrorist uh attack um when they go to work and go to school each day uh so um in our last 5 minutes i want to do two things okay so the first is i'm going to read to you uh a comment all right and i think this gets to the heart of many people who do not like the idea okay yeah. i'm going to read to you you sort of answered it but it's it's um you know as we are closing uh so that's the first thing i'm going to do so you can you know it's a way in which you can summarize everything okay and then the second thing is my i'm going to ask you a question uh which is essentially what should we do next because i'm sold on this idea and so yeah. it's going to be two parts but let me ask you the first one i'll let it stop i'll repeat the second one and then we'll close okay and so um uh so i'm going to read it uh an anonymous attendee your idea seems to be based on the assumption that developing countries without functioning governments have problems because citizens of the country are incompetent there this is incredibly patronizing many of these countries are still suffering from the trauma of colonialism and economic exploitation by us europe chi uh, china why should developed countries expect a return on their investment when helping their former colonies trillions of dollars worth of wealth they effectively stole could and should be returned by forgiven loans and building infrastructure in existing cities i mention this because as you can imagine and i'm sure you've had i think you mentioned this throughout your talk but it's a good way to sort of wrap up before i ask you my final question so any yeah, response sure well so on on this i mean the first thing is um i i want to uh, do what i said i do before it's just acknowledge that feelings are facts and many people have this this feeling about this proposal and i understand that all i would ask of them is engage in this discussion and let's see if we can come up with something else 
that that maybe you know seems better. Um, but it, it, let's look for something which is better than the the status quo, where so many people feel trapped. And then the second thing I would do is just say to them, I personally do. Those people move to a system where the government is functioning very quickly become productive citizens, hardworking, ambitious, uh, you know, model uh, participants in society. So all of the people who are trapped in these bad uh, uh, equilibria have the potential uh, good neighbor like to die, but they can't realize that potential when they're stuck in a system that's broken. It's like a system that's broken tends to perpetuate itself and things like uh, uh, you know and uh, existing system, but determined that brings out their better side, they will all, um, you know, they will all do so and, and, and will all, will all thrive. So there's nothing wrong with the people. There is something wrong with multiple equilibria. You can get a bunch of people stuck in an equilibrium, which is bad for everybody and brings out the bad side in everybody, they could all see there'd be another equilibrium in which they'd all be better, but they just don't know how to get from the bad one to the, to the good one. And what I'm really trying to hold out is that this is a feasible process where they get these same people get from the bad equilibrium to living together with each other in, in, in the good equilibrium. And, you know, there's got to be a way for us to All right, so we're, we're, we can't hear you, Paul. Let's see if Paul comes back. <laughs> All right, it looks like we lost Paul, so we just wait a quick second. Uh, if anybody else has some uh, questions, uh, please put them in the question and answer. I will make sure uh, I communicate all of the questions to Paul. And uh, let's see if Paul will pick up. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. My um, <laughs> my technology is not cooperating with me today. Can you hear me? Yeah, uh, we can hear you well. Thank you, thank you. So, okay, so uh, even if I got cut off, you should go on to like our our, our closing uh, comment. So, so um, I think we're left with the last minute or so. 
And so, um, you know, I'm fascinated by these ideas. As I look through the chat, many people are really fascinated. And by the way, I really enjoyed uh, this uh, uh, presentation. I've heard it before. I've spoken to you, but this has been a much clearer. Uh, so uh, what should we be doing? So if we buy into this idea, should I call the president of Ghana and say, hey, uh, let's set a DEFCO here. Yeah. Is it the president of the... What should we do, all of us in the audience? What are our marching orders? Well, so, you know, I've, I've struggled with this. As you know, I tried to go talk to some governments about, let's just try and get this up and running. My, my sense right now is that this is an idea which needs more development amongst scholars and uh, the kind of intellectual elites around the world. You know, I think what we should do is that person who wrote the, the critique, um, who said, you know, this is patronizing, this is a bad idea, that person and you and I and many others should start the broad discussion to say, let's find something that could work better. Let's use this kind of proposal I'm, I'm making as a way to kind of broaden the discussion and let's look together at the pluses and minuses of various specific alternatives and see if we can come up with a, a version that we can support. And I think if we can build this kind of intellectual climate of, you know, crit criticism and analysis and uh, potentially support, that might give um, elected uh, officials um, enough confidence to, to try something like this in, in, you know, in some uh, particular case. So I think what we can do is what we do as scholars, what we do as students is discuss, learn, disagree, argue, uh, but out of that process, I hope what will emerge is something that gives us a, a, a better path forward for those 750 million people who are is so um, so distressed right now. Okay, so on that note, and uh, with our marching orders, we'll do as you say. We will uh, continue the conversation and uh, uh, see where that heads. So again, uh, Paul, um, I really enjoy this. It's given me food for thought. I know it's uh, going to influence what I'm doing in Ghana, my own research in Africa. So, uh, you know, real thank you for uh, being with us uh, on behalf of NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. Uh, thank you. I thank the Institute folks. Uh, all of you have worked very hard to put all of this together. And it's really great having the Institute. Uh, there are a number of uh, events that they all have. And uh, I know that this conversation will continue. So thanks a lot, Paul. Thank you a lot, all of you in the audience. And uh, thank you, NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. It was my it was my pleasure, and I'm sorry I couldn't be there in Abu Dhabi uh, Abu Dhabi with with you. But but someday soon we'll we'll get back to normal. That's right. That's a promise there, Paul. Okay, so uh, uh, we look forward to seeing you in Abu Dhabi. All right. Bye bye, everybody. <laughs> You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu